I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. All right, everybody, welcome back to Battleground Podcast. We are doing the second part of my interview with the great Rob Pinholt. Now, Rob um, was my radio telephone operator in Afghanistan. Um, I volunteered him to do it. It's not something that he picked. Um, and then now he got out of the military, and he's the CEO of Claymore Ops, which is a mentorship program for transitioning veterans. So serve this country in uniform. He continues to serve those who serve us even now. Um, he's a great, great American, and I'm psyched to have our second part of our conversation today. Rob, welcome back to the podcast, man. Thanks for giving me more of your time. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to be here. So we like talked for about an hour the first episode, and (laughs) I guess we were solving the problems of the world. I don't know. Um, (laughs) I really just want to like just jump right into Afghanistan now. Um, We had a rough deployment. Anybody who who's watched this or knows about me or subscribe to this podcast, you probably have heard. Uh, the story of of Outlaw Platoon from me in a couple different ways, but the reason why I'm bringing my soldiers on is just because they give a completely different perspective on the fight there, and I want to do everything that I can to to elevate their stories as well. And so, it, Afghanistan was hell for me. Like I still think about it every day in some way. I mean, I'm not saying that it like completely dominates my thoughts. Um, but I mean, literally every day something will happen. I'll be like, oh man, that kind of reminds me of this. Or, you know, that time we were in Afghanistan smelled like this. You know what I mean, Rob? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so tell me about, like, what were some of the, the seminal moments in Afghanistan for you? Well, I think arriving there was a big deal. You know, I mean, all we had, I think you were kind of in the same boat as I was, all we had the, the to go off of in terms of what to expect was what the guys who had been there before had told us guys who had, we had some several guys who had been what was about two years prior they had been to Afghanistan and that was kind of all we had to go off of but it's a very surreal experience to be there you kind of know you're getting closer to the fight you know it's like um it's like you, you read these stories about guys in World War One, and they could start to hear the guns off in the distance and you know they know they're getting close to the front and it kind of felt like that <laughs> Because for us it was it was a, it was a plane. So you get on a plane in a familiar place, and you get off a plane, and you're surrounded by mountains and uh, in a very unfamiliar place. And it's really a, a major major um, shock to the system in a, in a way. And uh, so that was a big one, I would say. Man, um, I um, do you remember that? I do. Gosh, you're talking to me about it, and it's all flooding back to me now for the first time. You, know, you get off the bird there, and it's like. You're just surrounded by mountaintops everywhere. And some of them, like, yeah. some of them aren't 
huge, but the ones way off in the distance, like like a Bagram, for example, is a, is a good example uh, is is a good example of this. So just towering mountains all the way around, three hundred sixty yeah. degrees, and never seen anything like that in my life. And and it is yeah. incredibly surreal, especially the first time uh, that you load live rounds in your magazines. There's this picture of me loading loading my magazines for the first time ever and I look like a t- like a kid, you know, I was a kid, but I was like 23, looked scared shitless, like completely out of my mind and all the, all you guys are are sitting around me doing the same thing um in like one of those shell buildings, the turtle shell buildings that they had there and like everybody yeah. had their gear hanging every- it was it was like a shanty town, but yeah. I do remember that. It was crazy. And you get to the front where we were in Bermel on that, on those outlying bases. I mean, at the time that was just where we were, but they were, they legitimately were outlying forward operating bases. We lived, it seemed like Rob, a completely different lifestyle than people who say deployed to Bagram, Salerno, or even, yeah. or even our battalion headquarters at Organi, which was still like uh, all things considered when compared to other bases was still fairly dangerous place in Organi, but but Bermel was just so far out there, and oh yeah, we we get to the base in Bermel and it was just again hilltops everywhere. I mean, in another life, Afghanistan could be, you know, a billion dollar plus industry for ski resorts and tourism oh, yeah. and everything else if they can just yeah. get it together, but. It is surreal, especially when what what I thought of when somebody tries to kill you for the first time, you're, that yeah. sticks that has stuck with me, and I think that moment yeah. for me has changed me in a lot of ways. Where I remember thinking, I mean, you know, they shoot a rocket at us early on. Everyone was like, "Oh my god, we're getting our CIBs. It's gonna be crazy," you know. Um, but it was just thinking like, there's somebody up in those hilltops that wants me dead and doesn't even know me, and I just I found that to be so. So bizarre. Yeah, yeah. It kind of, you know, it, it to me, it brought me back to some of the things that um, I think the Army's pretty good at training soldiers for these kinds of situations because, you know, I can remember going into basic training. We talked last time about putting on the uniform, uh, but I also remember getting to the first rifle range, and, and I really hadn't done any shooting prior to that, maybe like Boy Scouts or something to shoot a BB gun. I, it wasn't much, you know, and uh, despite the fact that I'm from Texas. Um, and uh, and it didn't. It struck me that we were not shooting at circular like bullseye targets. We were shooting at human silhouettes, and um, and just kind of creating that that uh, that feeling of man versus man fighting. And of course, you know, then they they call you body bag fillers and things like that. They they you know the the drill sergeants will will sing cadences with you that about killing and being killed and all that kind of stuff. And it's, they could try to kind of condition you for it. Um, and then, and then when the time came, when, we, like you said, we were being shot at and, and I can remember at night looking off in the Hills and seeing the lights of their campfires, you know, and maybe, maybe some of them were lumberjacks up there, but I, I, I suspect most of them were, you know, enemy reconnaissance patrols that were, you know, uh, camped out for the night, keeping an eye on us. And, um, you know, that is very surreal. It's very surreal to know that there's somebody who their whole mission is to snuff you out. Yeah. I it, I don't know if we talked about this in the last episode or talked about this with somebody recently about how, you know, you hear like all these stories of these veterans are like, 
take it easy on us for Fourth of July. Like, you know, I, I don't. <laughs> it's Fourth of July. Light off as many fireworks as you want. I'm, I, I, I can handle it. Is but, um, I, I was sitting there listening to the fireworks, and they weren't freaking me out or anything. But it does bring me back to Afghanistan and the way that we would fall asleep. We would get used to just our 105s would fire all night. We used to have what, yeah. what back then they were called OH&I fires, um, harassment and interdiction fires, which we don't they don't do in Afghanistan anymore. They didn't do. I mean, after we left, couldn't have been more than a couple years before they stopped that. You know, after the rules of engagement changes and everything else, you know, but. Um, just going to bed and getting used to those guns firing all night. And then you would hear the dull thuds out in the distance. It really is watch, like watching a movie or something, falling asleep in the trenches and just hearing the machine guns yeah. you know, over and over. I mean, it's so everything about it. Rob, I look back even, on my even time. watching them fight each other. You remember them fighting each other? You'd see tracer rounds, and we knew we didn't have any American patrols yes. over there, and it was one tribe fighting against another tribe that you know, maybe they'd been fighting for a thousand years or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, it is crazy. It is crazy. So I, I, that was surreal for me, you know, and it's like you're falling asleep out there in the mountains. The enemy's all around us. You could either fall asleep in the truck, which is really uncomfortable, or stretch out and lay on the ground. But then you're worried about, uh, this is going to sound crazy to people who are watching or listening, but you're worried about getting your throat cut in the middle of the night. And people, even when you had like, we called them piss tubes. So forgive the you know the crude statement, but that's what we call them over there. <laughs> these these tubes that stick up these these plexi what, these PVC pipe tubes that PVC stick up out of the ground that are buried. You know the one end sticks up out of the ground. And they've got this metal mesh netting like on the top, and they they're buried six feet or something under the ground with crush and run gravel. And you go to the bathroom in them. We call them piss tubes. It's gross thinking back <laughs> but you'd have to wake up in the middle of the night and walk for me it was 100 yards or something maybe less maybe 50 60 yards was still quite a distance in the middle of the night and, and that's another thing that i'm thinking about now for the first time how dark it was over there and i mean yeah dark when there's no ambient light there's no cities there's no towns nobody has their front porch lights on you know and Walking out, I mean, you can't see six inches in front of your face. It's pitch black. And you're worried, you know, you've got Afghans, locals that we commissioned to work on our bases, you know. And I'm like thinking, man, we're out here surviving in these direct fire engagements. And I'll be damned if I, you know, get my throat cut going pee in a in a in a piss tube that would be one hell of a way to go but those are the those are the things that you think about isn't that crazy is that crazy yeah because well when you got guys going at night they're gonna miss the tube sometimes and get it on the ground so the ground is like saturated with like 100 men's urine and and the thought of it like like a stray rocket coming in hitting you and you're there with your trousers down laying in pee slowly dying you know like there's something about that that is is somehow more mortifying than death itself. I don't know. And this is why. This is why. Like <laughs> this is why guys would pee in bottles. Uh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and like you'd go into into Greason's room, and I love Greason, and like we we lived right next to each other. Greason Sergeant Greason was my platoon sergeant, and I think he would 
he would wholly admit to this because we all used we all peed in bottles nobody wanted to use the piss tubes in the middle of the night um and i'd go in there and you go in there and he'd be like watching the outlaw josie whales or working on paperwork or something (laughs) and all along his walls lined up on the little two by fours that lined his walls were like glistening bottles of urine and we'd throw (laughs) we'd (laughs) we'd go to throw them out We'd go to throw them out and, and the Afghans would come and take the trash and they'd pick it up and it'd be like 9,000 pounds because there's probably like 40 <laughs> gallons of urine in there. It was just a great – can you believe that we lived that life? <laughs> can you believe that? <laughs> I can't believe that. But that yeah. was that was well, a grave fear of mine, and you described it perfectly. Nobody wants to get their throat cut and slowly bleed out in a in – a, in a puddle yeah. of a hundred men's urine, you know. Well, I was a we- I was a weirdo, and I I never like I think twice did I go number two in the field at all for like my entire time in the army. I don't know how you pull that off, uh, you know, physiologically, but somehow that that was the that was the situation for me. And when there was one night, and I don't know if you remember this, um, there it, we were on we were on a hill, and you really had to go. I and you I ran go, out. Man. I remember. I remember. And and there was a there was there were there was a sniper. Do you remember that? There was some guy popping shots at us. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> and it would it was like they were inaccurate shots, so we kinda didn't worry about it. And, and and it was getting dark. And then this like thick fog fell. And this was like the thickest fog I've ever experienced in my life where you like literally couldn't see my hand in front of my face. And I was like, I gotta go. I gotta go. <laughs> so and the way our, we had like a linear, like cigar shaped patrol base going on instead of the, you know, the, the more spread out one where we would have a slit trench. And so I had to just kind of like meander down the hill away from the patrol to go find a rock. And, um, you know, I was just like, just any minute now, some old boy in a, with a knife is, is going to encounter me and I'm going <laughs> to mess my pants. You know, that's the, <laughs> it's the, the, the weird things you think about in, in those situations. Well, in, a, in what world? I mean, you know. I remember you hear the way that parents talk about their 20-somethings, you know, and, oh, I don't want my son. He's too young to drive across the country. And I'm like, Rob Penholt was pooping in the middle of Afghanistan under sniper fire. (laughs) It was was younger than your son would be driving across the country. (laughs) Like, you know, it's just... The whole thing is just so crazy, and yeah. those are the situations. That, I mean, I we, I probably haven't talked about that in forever, but those are the things that <laughs> those are the things those are the situations that you find yourself in. That man, if I go, nobody wants to go out like that, you know? No, no. Well, we were fortunate as far as moving around at night. We were fortunate to have those dogs. Remember the, remember the dogs we had on on post there for a while? Yes. And I know we weren't really supposed to have them, but. Um, they they kept away the, all the riffraff, the the, the the bad dogs, let's say, the dogs didn't like us and uh and you know, the rodents and things like that that would get into our into our equipment and uh Yeah, that was I, a I stupid a policy nights. by the way. And I get it. Like I it I do get it. I you know, you don't want like you don't want a rabid dog coming down there biting a soldier or, you know I I don't know. But that's I, that's got to be the least of our worries, though. I mean, you know, like we're in combat. To have dogs is is the the trade off. Has got you, you got to uh, do a little bit of do a little bit of. Uh, they were just just even about mentally, Rob. They were our connection to back home. Dogs reminded, and, and, and what was you know what's crazy is that dogs hated the enemy. They knew they it's almost like oh. they knew who they were. 
They you did. Know? They absolutely did. And they could they sense it. Did. And they knew who was bad. Even when yeah. we didn't, they could sense it. And and they yeah, that's so true, Rob. They would they would keep rodents away. They would actually yeah. guard us while we slept, you know? And yeah, guys, guys were locking and loading, going to the guard towers after we, after they killed those dogs off because because there were other dogs that were getting in that weren't our dogs and and they were mean and you know we don't want we don't want to get bit by some dog on the way to a guard tower and so, so to me the trade off was we t- I just was, talked about this I just talked about this like w- with uh, my wife and she was like when remember when people were attacking you on the campaign trail or the media was attacking you saying like. I can't believe that in his book he he refers to somebody as the male bitch. I'm like, well, first of all, I wasn't referring to her as that. It's just everybody, everybody was, everybody. And and it was because we go out on patrol. She shows up at our base once every six months or something. I don't even, maybe even once in 16 months. I don't know. Shows up on our base, sees sees the dogs there, tells tells battalion or tells somebody, and they send somebody down to euthanize our dogs. Legitimately, they euthanized our dogs yeah. while we were out on. They waited for us to go out on patrol. They euthanized yeah. our dogs, and then they threw them on the burn pit. And Pantoja found the skulls on the burn pit. Like, can you imagine? I mean, that is. This, I'm sorry, man. Like, that's just evil. And those dogs were. I mean, and the reason she did it, you know, she did it because like all of this happened she didn't do it but she was just following orders right and yeah. and it what we in and in the defense of people who did this stuff they these were the rules we're not supposed to have part of general order number 1 or some i don't know general order number 1 was like no drinking sex porn stuff right. like that but yeah. dogs were up there as well you weren't allowed to have them um but we had well, vaccinated we these dogs you know we had they had yeah. all their they had all their vaccines and stuff so yeah. So that she was just following orders, I guess. But still, it was de- that was a devastating moment for for our guys. O- Over cautious. I mean, you talk about people not letting their kids drive across the country and whatnot. That you know, this is a this is excessive caution, and and I think th- that kind of caution had far left us because we were under fire every day. And I think for the people who weren't under fire every day, caution was the was the was was a little bit more. They were a little bit more comfortable with caution than they were with taking the chance to recognize that they that by leaving those dogs with us they were countering you know the negative effects of of being in combat it's like going back to bagram and i i had very few trips back to bagram um i mean maybe more than most of the actual line troops in the platoon but um like would you get off the bird and people would be wearing road guard belts like walking to the defac and you're like what it, it was just a totally yeah. different world, you know. That's that's how you know somebody's incentive is to never make a mistake. And when when your when your incentive is to never make a mistake, then you never do anything good. When your mis- incentive is to to find, fix, close with, and destroy the enemies of the United States of America in close combat through fire and maneuver, then that's where that's where the American victory comes from. And those the people who are making those road guard rules are not they were not they were they're incentivized to not make mistakes. That is interesting. You still remember the infantry mission? <laughs> you just recited it. You just recited it like right out of the FM seven eight, the old field yeah. manual that they used to use. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's really crazy. You're, that's such a great point. And th- those people, I mean, obviously they lived in a different world. It was more. Yeah. Bagram was safer than Atlanta. I mean, remember we used to joke. I remember in the in the truck because you and I spent. 
hours and hours just for, <laughs> just for people that are watching and listening. RTO goes with went with me everywhere. And I mean, you weren't the RTO the whole time, but for the for the months that you were, we would just talk about everything. Remember, we used to joke around like those guys up in Bagram should be paying the military to stay there. You know, it's like a it's like a, it's like a resort that they, they have these like, world class gyms everywhere. They have iced coolers of of bottled water on every corner. Salsa, salsa night on Thursdays. Salsa, salsa night. I think it was Wednesday. <laughs> But whatever, I don't know. Maybe yeah, that was senior night. Was, yeah. I don't know. Maybe that was senior night. I don't, yeah, know. I don't know. They had a different night. Yeah, they did have. Night. They did have salsa night. They did, and they were getting three hots, three hot meals a day. They were hot showers every day. Um, Plus, they had midnight chow. They had midnight chow. God, yeah. <laughs> they had green bean <laughs> coffee. They had Burger King. They had McDonald's. You, we were out there. We were. Humping a hundred pounds up the Hindu Kush mountains at fifteen thousand feet, I think yeah. I was in the best shape of my life when I came back there. Or came back from Afghanistan, and then we go back to Bagram and be like, "Holy shit! Some of these dudes gained weight." Like, <laughs> it's like a perfect encapsulation of the, the difference between a front a front line troop and yeah. somebody who's in the rear with the gear. And by the way, there's nothing I am not. Um, everybody has a job, you know, when you right, join the military. Right, right. The thing about the Army is that, and this is why I recommend young, young to young people, unless they want to do something highly specialized in the Navy, like being a sub or, you know, captain of a nuclear aircraft carrier, unless, or f- a fighter pilot or something. If you want to serve in the Army and then the Army has everything. It's just like a reflection of our of the civilian world. You can be an accountant. You can be... A nurse, you know, you'd be in the quartermaster corps, do supply and logistics. You can be in the infantry like us and be on the front lines fighting. But you can, you be a pharmacist, you can be a doctor, you can do anything in the army. Engineer, um, they have everything. So if you wanted to serve your country, but maybe you didn't want to be a front line troop, but you wanted the experience of service, a million and one things you can do in the army, you know. But I mean, you don't have that same level of opportunity elsewhere. So my point is, is that everybody has a job. It's not a slight against those people. I will say that there was times when I was younger in my 20s where I didn't have the perspective that I have now. And I think like in the perspective that I have now is that if you volunteer to serve this country in a time of war, and you're go- you know you're going overseas. It doesn't matter if you're a Bagram or in Brumel, although one of those deployments from a combat st- standpoint is more difficult. You can get your ass shot off in Bagram as well. You're risking your life for the country, and that's all that matters to me. And I, and I mean that. Um, yeah. But I will say there were moments in my 20s as a platoon leader where you're getting shot at every damn day. And I'm like, how are these assholes getting paid the same combat pay as me? Do you ever wonder that? <laughs> like, these oh, guys yeah. are making well, the it, these guys are making the same amount of money as me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So absolutely. frustrating. So frustrating. And it, it, it is such a different job. I mean, you know, when you think about the the nature of the job for what we did when we were in Conus, which means back in the U.S. Uh, in Garrison, we would we would train. That was our job. So we didn't have a job that we did on a day-to-day basis. We were preparing to do our job, which was combat. And the other guys, most of the other uh, occupational specialties, they had a job to do at that moment, at that time, where they were, you know, they were, whatever their job was, maintaining vehicles or whatever, they were doing that then and there. They had a, a day job, essentially. 
And so when they would go to Afghanistan, they would continue to do that day job. And so it was definitely in a much worse situation to be there than to be where, where we were back, back home. But for us, it was, that was our time to do our job. And it was a very different job. And at the end of the day, you know, people say, well, you chose infantry. Yeah, we did. That's the point. Uh, we, we, we volunteered to be on the tip of the spear, uh, you know, meeting the enemy face on. And, um, and, and, and I, don't, I don't think that, you know, obviously we want to make sure that we acknowledge that everybody else was on the team. Um, but I don't think it's, I don't think there's anything wrong with acknowledging also that there, there are additional hardships that come and uh, additional, uh, there's additional merit, I would say, to what, what we did. And at the end of the day, um, we're where the rubber met the road, you know. Well, hey, Even, look, I, Rob, I completely agree. I mean, this is why... The, and this is something that really kind of bothered us, rubbed us the wrong way. But since we're going down that path, we'll go there. Today, I want to talk about something that's been on the minds of many Americans lately. Energy independence. With rising energy prices and geopolitical tensions, it's more important than ever for our country to be self-sufficient when it comes to our energy needs. And that's where Deepwell Services comes in. They're a company that's not only dedicated to delivering top-notch services to the oil and gas industry, but they're also committed to the goal of American energy independence. With their cutting-edge technology and expert team of professionals, they're helping to unlock new sources of domestic energy and reduce our dependence on foreign oil. But that's not all. Deepwell Services is also a great American company that's hiring like crazy right now. And they're not just looking for anyone. They're seeking out talented and hardworking individuals who want to join their team and make a difference. And with competitive salaries and benefits, it's a great opportunity to not only work for a patriotic company, but also build a rewarding career in the energy sector. So if you're looking for a job with purpose and meaning, or if you're simply passionate about American energy independence, then you should definitely check out Deepwell Services. Visit their website at deepwellservices.com to learn more about their company and career opportunities. This is why the, the combat infantryman's badge was so special to me. Yeah, I mean, and so I've been going through my old stuff and um, unpacking. I've been in this place for a year now. Uh, but unpa- I got finally got all of my um, military <laughs> stuff back after my divorce was finalized. Like why, why it took that long to get my military gear back? I don't know, but nevertheless, like I found the the very first Ranger tab that was that was pinned on me. You Ooh. see the pin there and everything. My dad pinned this yeah. on me. This is like yeah. worked my ass off to get this. It was really really shitty experience. Really tough. I'm proud of it, but that CIB was something that I cherished. And it's because it's you only get that if you're in the infantry or and now uh, uh, in the special forces and direct combat with an enemy of the United States, you know. And I took a lot of pride in that because that was that award was emblematic of our job and what set us apart from everybody else, just like the blue cord, right? And what I was explaining to somebody the other day was that what's cool about the infantry. Actually, you know what? It was my son. It was Ethan Rob, who's you know. 14 he's growing up fast so what's cool about being in the infantry is that when you walk if you're in your dress uniform and you're wearing your cord and you've got your cib 
Every, and you got back in the day, you had branch insignia too with the cross rifles. Everyone knew you were infantry. Everyone knew that you were a warfighter. Everyone knew that you, in some level, you were front towards enemy. And if you had the CIB, yeah. it means you were getting shot at by that enemy. So there's almost like another layer of respect for the infantry. Um, but when we were there, it was when they rolled out the cab. Do you remember that? Yeah, the combat yeah. action badge, which I'm, I'm fine with, again, now that there's a little perspective, um, the, especially since a lot of these, especially in Iraq or anyone that was running convoys in Afghanistan, you didn't have to be the infantry to get your ass blown up by an Af- by a, um, an IED or get shot up in an ambush. So, again, I think it was it's totally fine. I mean, I look back on it now, again, with some leadership perspective, thinking, well, wait, it's probably a good thing that we recognize those troops for their combat service too. But at the time, it just felt like they were trying to make everybody infantry. Do you remember that? Um, They were watering down the CIB. They changed the uniform so that for officers, well, officers and enlisted had the their branch insignia on the collar. They they removed that. That was a huge mistake. Uh, That was a huge mistake. I I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Those cross rifles mean something. They were... Yeah, and I think I think the way that they were thinking these this is somebody who hasn't been I, I don't think these were decisions being made by people who had been in like direct combat uh, because they I think they thought it was the same thing but the you know a movement to contact where you're you know the enemies that are waiting for you and you're going to find them and kill them is a very different thing than you're you're traveling somewhere where you're not supposed to be in a fight and then you get in a fight they're not the same thing and while you certainly want to acknowledge those who get in a fight. For whatever reason, it's not the same thing as, as you know, put, you know, getting your legs moving toward the enemy. That's a different thing. And they made that badge look a lot like the combat infantryman's badge, which was kind of a thumb in the eye, in my opinion. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that it's I think it's perfectly reasonable to have issues with the way that they handled that stuff. I think I think it's it's reflective of a lot of the attitudes Um where there was just a lack of respect for the the combat guys, you know, and I, I think that for us in Afghanistan, I think we benefited from uh, from being neglected in that sense, though, because in a lot of ways we were able to fight in the way that we were meant to fight, rather than having somebody look over our shoulders. So we benefited from that kind of neglect. But I think that neglect was a lot of what resulted wow. in a lot of those policy changes. Don't you? Wow! I mean, oh my God! It's a it's an absolutely fantastic point. God, that neglect was the silver lining on the deployment. Where we didn't have to, we weren't ha- like we had get company commander's approval, but our commander passed it down to me, you know, make the decision yeah. on the yeah. ground. Oh my God. What yeah. an, I mean, we fought in an infantryman's dream out there. Um, yeah. I mean, I say infantrymen it's because back when we served again, I got attacked for this in politics as well. And I said, my men, this, my men, that, Ew, why are you just saying men? It's like, well, that's because it was just men when I served. It was <laughs> idiots, you know? Um, but that's also something that infantry commanders say, man, this is what we're doing. We're scaling point right. to Hawk. See you on the other side. I mean, like, like every combat leader going back to Alexander the great would say that, you know, it's like, right. um, right. it's a great point. You got to remember, you got to remember, you don't, you don't have to apologize for any of that stuff. I know you know this, but you don't have to apologize for that stuff because the people who complain about those things, they don't want you to do the right thing. They want to catch you doing something that they can call the wrong thing. They don't, they don't. They're they're not looking for the right thing, you know what I mean? Yeah, they're complete idiots. Um, they're who I like to call mouth <laughs> mouth breathing morons, but um, who've never served anything but themselves for their entire lives. Um, but um, 
these uh like th- it was a silver lining that we didn't have people breathing down our neck that we were free to engage the enemy in the way that we wanted in the way that we saw fit and we operated extremely effectively but do you also remember okay so going back to the the rolling out of the combat action badge and i again here we are going off on a tangent here but but um they also rolled out the black berets at the same time do you remember that do you remember how mad the rangers were at that yeah, how yeah, the Rangers yeah, would wear yeah. their black berets, and then they gave everyone black. So here we were mad that that as as standard infantry, okay, now they're giving co- cabs to everybody. But at the same time, or roughly the same time, um, I mean, it didn't like overlap exactly, but roughly the same time period, U- U.S. Army Rangers, the Ranger battalions would wear black berets. The black berets set them apart from everybody else. Well, then Shinsheki at the time, I think it was Shinsheki, made, gave everybody black berets, and the Rangers were like, this is bullshit. But they gave the Rangers tan berets, and they're like, these tan berets are stupid. I mean, it was just like everything, everybody was, everybody was pissed. Everyone is so yeah. mad. Um, but now you look at what they're doing to the military and those problems that we had back then seem like nothing. They seem like nothing yeah. compared to what they're doing to the, to our military today. So I guess, you know, again, 20 years of perspective, it, you know, I don't know. Man. Well, you were, on, you were on, you were on Jocko Willing's show and you, you talked with him about how one of the things that he mentioned was that he had his, his, uh, his companies, they were, they were named instead of just being alpha company, Bravo company, they were attack company. And, uh, you know, um, I don't know the, I don't know the Bravo would be, but you know, he, he, they were naming the, the companies to distinguish them. And I think that that's, that's something that you did very well because, for us to be called the outlaw platoon, I don't know how many people know that, but this wasn't something that was sanctioned by the army. We just decided that this was an identity we were going to take on. I mean, most platoons had some kind of a nickname, but um, but you know, we we kind of we, we created the the emblem and, and and distinguished ourselves from others because I think that that's the right move. That's the thing. That's the that's what winning teams do. You wow. follow every Super Bowl team in history, the NFL. They all have distinguished themselves in, in one way or another. They weren't just milk toast, do what everybody else did. They found ways to be different. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think I think that that's to be something to be celebrated. That I haven't thought about that in years. I mean, we did pick, remember. Do you remember? Uh, we had T-shirts made, and I mean, yeah. had a, a, Mike Emmerich, who's one of our soldiers, an amazing artist, like drew the emblem, and I had a guide on made. And remember, we ran with it once, and we got in trouble. I got in trouble because you're not supposed to. <laughs> and I didn't know, you know, we were like out oh, there as a platoon running around with a guide on, like a like a complete yeah. idiot. Um, but it, for you're not allowed to run around with. Platoon size elements and below don't get their own guidons. Only, only, right, right. only companies do. Uh, but there I was, like a moron. Like, and, but people liked it, you know. Um, yeah, that 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 did that identity was something that we did defend. You know, we circled yeah. we circled up around it, and I think that we embodied that in Afghanistan. And it came to be, I mean, we came to be known, you know, and where we'd listen to the enemy's radios and they'd see the green skulls on the sides of our trucks and just choose not to engage us. Just, right. Hey, maybe I'm going to pick an easier target. And mm-hmm. you're right. I mean that when we decided, because it wasn't just me, Rob, it was just, everybody was like, we need a name. We need something to, you know, we need something to rally around. We need, we have to have something, you know, 
to coalesce this crate. And we were the bad news bears of the battalion. We were always messing up. I was always getting in trouble, always getting yelled at for not shaving enough, not getting a haircut. (laughs) You remember... You remember when uh, we went up to Organi for that battalion patrol? You were the, you, I think you were my driver, and we had to go pick up Colonel Toner and bring him back. And like, we never wore like the next stuff on our IBA, yeah, but that I patrol know. I did because I'm like, what do you think? What do you think the chances are of me, me, I'm to get out of here without shaving? You know, we're in combat and stuff. Like, who cares? <laughs> you know, like, and it was like, it wasn't. I didn't have like a damn beard. I had like like right, it right. wasn't like this. It was one day. We drove up there, stayed overnight, and I forgot my razor or something. And I'm like, "What am I gonna?" You're do? the kind of guy. You got that dark, thick hair. You can't get away with. Yeah, it. Yeah, and so I remember. Remember, I think you were. Were you there? Were you on that patrol? I probably was. Yeah, I and I was like, I don't know. What are the chances I'm going to do? And of course, I give the patrol brief, and Colonel Toner's there, and we got. <laughs> Not even no bullshit. Thirty some trucks in this convoy because the battalion commander and his tack is coming and like his PSD, his personal security detachment, and they got trucks. And then I got my platoon, and I'm leading the. I'm the convoy leader, and it was like a three hour drive or something. For do you remember how long of a drive it was from Oregon? It was like three hours. Was it three? Or was it yeah, an hour? That sounds about right. Yeah, I don't. I don't everything I don't. people don't realize. I think they might imagine that we're driving on roads out there. It's like. It's like yes. you're just driving through a field for hours and hours, basically. And, it, and it's it's we're going about the pace of a school zone. So if you can imagine riding a school zone for hours like that's that's the mind numbing experience with it with a helmet on that weighs so much. It hurts your neck. Yeah, it was crazy. Well, he like pulls me. First of all, I'm like super nervous as it is, you know, because it's like you don't want to look like an ass in front of the boss, you know, and I'm the one yeah. leading the patrol back. So. As you as you said, we didn't have there were no roads. It's not like you oh make a left at the red light. It's like no make a left where that guy's popping a squat and let's see if we can go there. Like it's literally like that. Like no, you're gonna go down that road. You're gonna pass. You're gonna pass like a, a wooden stick sticking out of the mud. You're gonna see a beehive hanging from the tree. Make a left at that beehive. Am I? Am I? Am I exact? That's exactly how it is. No, right? not I even. Mean, not even a little bit. No. I mean, that's exactly how it is. So it's so. My point is, it's easy to get lost. And if you get lost, one, you can get shot up pretty badly if you find yourself in enemy territory. Or two, it could be like a three-hour drive it could become a six-hour drive, and then all of a sudden oh, yeah, you got. Yeah. Then all of a sudden you got the battalion commander like looking at his watch, thinking, "Oh my god, this infantry lieutenant's a moron." And then, right. what if you run out of gas? What if you run out of fuel? I mean, that was a concern as well. Like, so, so many things I was nervous about. So I go through the patrol brief, hit it out of the park. We don't wear the neck pieces, but on that patrol I did. So I got it like, I got my helmet on and my sunglasses on and I have my neck guard up here and I'm trying to like hunch up underneath it like this so that he can't see like, (laughs) and he comes over and he comes over to me. He's like, Sean, I'm like, yes, sir. He's like, you know, he's, uh, I think he was like, Lieutenant Parnell. I'm like, yes, sir. He's like, take off your neck piece and your sunglasses let me see your face and i was like son of a bitch and he's like you didn't shave you didn't fucking shave and i'm like he's like you got five minutes to go shave this before. i'm like son of a bitch i didn't have a razor so you know what i did i like run this is like disgusting but i like run into the bathroom and i'm like scrambling around in full in full kit Right, and you have to have your rifle because yeah. you got to carry it everywhere. You know, like remember that, like like yeah, running around yeah. everywhere in full kit, like a yeah. moron. And I see this <laughs> razor, this disposable razor, sitting on the top of the trash, 
Like seriously, what was I supposed to do? <laughs> and so, like, I'm like, you like pressing down on the water. It's like there's like no hot water, you know, because you have to press down on the things. You can't like turn a yeah. faucet. It's like trickling out, and I'm just like <laughs> with a razor from the trash. <laughs> and I get back, and like Blood my everywhere. face, yeah, my face is all cut up. And he's like, "Let's go." I'm like, "What? What? Damn it!" <laughs> Like, why? Why? At the time, like, again, I get So looking again, talk about having a perspective. At the time, I was like, this is bullshit. Like, we're in combat. Who cares if we don't shave a little bit? But it really was a disciplined thing. It really was. Looking back, it was the right it was the right call, because as annoying as it was, as as got it, because it was so dumb, you know, but. It served a purpose, a tactical purpose. If you got hit with gas or some sort of, you know, nuclear, biological, chemical threat, you got a beard, your gas mask ain't sealing, and you're dying. You know, it's just that simple. So it did, it did serve a tactical purpose, but I do think that discipline and adherence to that standard, even even if it's a small one, right? Because you think like, oh, shaving, who cares? We're in combat. We can just let this go. No, no, no. Because when you start compromising on the small stuff small stuff becomes big stuff and big stuff in combat gets you killed and and i think rob first of all totally wrong and and the shaving thing was was necessary um but also i think that that's why when and i i don't know for sure so i'm just speculating but like other units would get out in the field their gunners would take their helmets off or something all of a sudden they get shot in the head and they're dead well, we had six yeah. guys shot in the head. They all survived because they never took their helmets off. We had guys getting Blue shot up. Sh- yeah, shrapnel injuries. Um, you know, we had uh, RPGs exploding, hitting turrets. They would have burn injuries, but they would have their gloves on. They'd have their glasses yeah. on. I can't tell you how many times gunners would show me shrapnel stuff from, like, holes in their glasses that they were wearing. Had They, oh, yeah. had, they yeah. downgraded their uniform even for a second at the wrong time. They're blind. Or they lose a hand. Yeah, I remember right, right. Say his eyeball was saved. They had that. There was that uh, vehicle-borne uh, improvised explosive device. It cut right through. Cut. I think it cut part of his eye, but the the glasses deflected the shrapnel just enough that it, that it, it saved his eyeball. Took off half of his ear. But so, yeah, right, right. Oh my God, what a stud he was. But uh, I mean, yeah. like, you look at so, I, you look at units that came after us, and it's just like. They would downgrade their uniform, and I just feel like uh, you'd see, like, watch a documentary, um, like Restrepo, for example, and and guys would be like walking around in firefights in their underwear, and I'm like, right, right, what the hell is this? Like, that's not right. Someone, right. I mean, like, so that was one of the things that I got onto my guys a lot about those kinds of things, and sometimes they didn't like me for it, but. Um, you know, one of the things you do in a patrol base is, you, you know, you've got some guys are sleeping and some guys are on security. They're 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 uh, protecting the force. And um, when guys would when my guys would sleep, I always told them all your gear is packed up, ready to go, because if we got to get up quickly, you're going to be ready to roll, ready exactly. to fight, ready to move. Exactly. Otherwise, you're going to end up without your gear for the rest of the deployment. A lot of those guys did. And that that happened, you know, and and um, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't going to let that happen under my watch. And. You are absolutely right about the discipline, and that's that makes a big difference. That's often a life or death difference, and not only is it whether or not you're following the rules as they're laid out, but also the mindset of 
ticking off the boxes that are the details, thinking in terms of details. How, what details have I done? Have I gone through the, the routine that I need to prepare myself for this fight? Because even though shaving might seem like it's immaterial in a fight, it is a routine, and a routine keeps you alive. When you're, when, when, you know, unlike most jobs where you can make a mistake and have a bad day and then just try again tomorrow, for us to make a mistake might mean the end of your life or the end of the lives of the people around you. And so that discipline is important, but kind of taken back to what we were talking about earlier, I think sometimes you can go overboard with the disciplines. I think the disciplines themselves are important, but you can't, you cannot worship the disciplines. You know, this is, this is, you know, Jesus taking the the grain on the side of the road during the Sabbath and, and, uh, and telling the, uh, telling the, the, um, the, what was it? The Pharisees that the, uh, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You know, it's, you, you cannot elevate the rules above people. And, um, you know, Colonel Toner was a stickler for rules, certainly. And um, I don't know if you remember this. The first firefight we were in, you probably don't remember this. Um, we we were in that weird, like, mountainous, like, valley kind of thing. It was, it was like a little bowl there. And um, and so we, I was trying to raise battalion net. I was trying to, because I was still your radio operator at the time. I was trying to get to the battalion, to talk to battalion so that you could, you know, relate to them what was going on. And so we would use a satellite deal for that. This was like, this is pretty old school. So we had this little spider looking thing that, that I would set up, a little antenna. And I had to point it just a certain way. You look oh, at this manual and it tells you this is the, the star you point it toward. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're supposed to point it just this way at this time of day and that kind of thing. And so I got, I was pretty good at setting the thing up. I had done it enough times. Um, but I would just kind of estimate, you know, I'd say, okay, I'm going to point it roughly in this direction. So, so I'm like under fire, bullets have whizzing past. And I'm putting it up on top of the Humvee because that's the elevated position where I can I can get it up you know above the trees and whatnot. And I'm like you know bullets coming past. I'm aiming this thing, and I get it pretty good. And uh, and so I call on to battalion and I and I got him. And it's just a little staticky, but it's I'm, I got him. And um, you know I explain what's going on, and I get the battalion commander on Colonel Toner, and he says uh, he says very calmly, three six Romeo, this is Cat Six. <laughs> You sound like you've got some calm problems. You need to you need to fix your net. Call me back when you got it under control. Cat six out. I was like, no. <laughs> that was like that was my first that was my first combat failure. You know. Well, and, it, uh, it's like yeah, we do have comms problems. I'm getting my ass shot off down here. Yeah, what you, yeah, what you don't realize is getting this right may cost my life. Is that really what you want? <laughs> And, and you know that's that's my point is that sometimes you can elevate the rules above above you know common sense and I think that might have been one of those moments. Well, I I think God that was crazy. <laughs> how much of a pain in the ass were those tax sats? Like oh you know all, the, all of those antennas and satellites it was they were who all who designs very those things? It's like all you have to do is take is is take put together this mini satellite dish on the roof of your truck like if you're you're like it comes in this comes in this satchel that you have to like like, you unzip it and you like put the base down and you screw the middle part on and you screw the top part on and you have to angle it just right to hit the satellite Mm -hmm. i'm like who the hell's doing that in an ambush like if you need like you're trying to raise the tactical satellite phone we would have fm comms and stuff that were secure but a lot of that stuff in the mountainous areas it's like line of sight. Sometimes you can rebound a signal off of another truck or relay something, but it's very unreliable, especially in a place like Afghanistan where you're in, yeah. a, you know, you, you've got 
a small unit, in our case, a company minus, in charge of an entire district, you know, a, a, a huge border region, very unreliable, right? So, yeah. um, but the tactical satellite phone is is how you talk to everybody else. And, you, you know, one TACSAT linking up to a satellite can talk to a, our, our battalion base or even Bagram that was 100 miles away. But here's the problem. I just told you how difficult it was to set up. And then when you're out in the field, you know, trying yeah. to set that, it's like, do you remember how just unreliable? We'd be like on some <laughs> observation post in the middle of nowhere and it like almost never worked. Almost right. never worked. You know? Yeah, I know. It's like it's like Tinker Toys in combat. The the whole thing. It's it's it was it was always felt very shaky too. It just felt like the lowest bidder made this. You know, Um, I don't know. To me, I I was always I was was I was always skeptical that it would work. Uh, Obviously, it works, and we get the job done, and we got the job done. But um, you know, I don't think it's quite like people imagine when they watch the movies and everything. You know, they got the little computer that shows where the bad guys are, and it, it was almost never like that. It's never like that. In fact, something always goes wrong. You know, in that first firefight, we couldn't get comms when they and, and it was a deliberate ambush for precisely yeah. that reason. They oh, they yeah. shot us up as soon as we passed around Hilltop 2474 or Gangakau Hill, like right there. That was yeah. uh, outside of Malikshe, right? That was Malikshe was one in the south. So, yeah, a yeah, couple, yeah, cl- right, couple yeah. clicks from the border. And yeah. come right around this huge, huge hill, like st- st- the mountain, steep as you could be. And it goes down to this like little gravy boat and then back up this hill. They ambush right at the base of the gravy boat, knowing right at the bottom of that gravy boat, knowing that that huge yeah. mountain would interrupt line of sight comms. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah, it's uh, crazy, 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 crazy. So t- tell me about like. What firefight stands out in your mind as as having changed you, or st- you know, as as where you learned the most, or was there a moment like that for you? I think I don't I don't know that I would say I think I think it might be too much for me to say that there was a, a particular moment that changed me, but I will tell you that on June tenth, at the the outset, I you know it was very obvious that we were outnumbered. That you know, there's the volume of fire was so heavy it's and. It, you know, so many guys were dropping. It, it was it was it was obvious that we were in in a in a rough spot. And for me, um, and I'm not a defeatist, but um, you know, it occurred to me that that might be the end. And um, and for me, it was like it wasn't. I wouldn't exactly say that my life flashed before my eyes, but I thought I thought about people I care about and do they know that I care about them and and. Um, and I, I have tried, I don't, I'm not good at it. I'm not a very expressive person, I think, but I've tried very hard to make sure people know that I care about them. And sometimes I get a little bit gushy and, you know, uh, I, I can kind of, I feel like I can kind of trace that back to that because man, it's like, it's just, you know, you, what's the, there's a, there's a, a quote from, um, from the famous native American leader about, uh, about living a life that's, that's, you know, that is, worthwhile and that when your time comes that you're you're ready to go because you know you've done you've done a lot I, I can't remember the quote but um you know that's that was kind of where I was like ah this is I I've I've not done everything I, sh- I should have done uh up to this point so that was kind of that was that experience for me and and we, we had some close calls man I I can remember uh running from because I, I was I was in I, I hated that fight because 
um, I was halfway between being a radio operator and being in a rifle squad because <laughs> I think I, I can't. I, we, I guess we were training up. Uh, you were about to get promoted. Like we were promoting you. Yeah, yeah, and so um, and so I was still responsible to be the radio operator, but I was also assigned to a rifle squad. So I was like torn the whole time. And um, so I'm on the line with the rifle squad, with uh, Wheat Squad, and um, and you know just shooting back. And then um, and then I realized I gotta go. I gotta go make sure that they got calm because I felt like I, maybe I look back and could see somebody like you know get angry with a radio or something. So so I get up and I'm running back. And um, as I run, I'm kind of going uphill, and I'm running toward a Humvee to you know to kind of go from one piece of cover to another. And uh, one of our gunners was up there. And he's shooting a 50 cal and he kind of glances down as he sees me out of the corner of his eye running up this hill and his eyes get really wide. And I could see the like the like little pieces of dirt kicking up off the ground in front of me and the leaves are falling from the trees, uh, you know, pine needles and stuff falling from the trees overhead. And I'm, I'm running like, you know, when you're a little kid, and you're about to get spanked and you're like you're running with your butt like way out in front of you. So, so your parents can't whack it. You know, I was like I was kind of doing that, you know, like. You know, my, my legs were going faster than the rest of my body. And, um, man, that was that was pretty wild. There was some pretty close calls there. It really was. I mean, what what an unbelievable lesson, though, you took from it. Make sure the, the people that you know always know how you feel about them. That's pretty amazing. I mean, what what were you afraid? What were you afraid of not having accomplished at that point, Rob? Uh, that, man, because I tell you, if I were if if I were to describe my whole life, it would basically be a series of people, um, incredible people. I've been blessed to know. This is something that has taken me most of my life up till now to figure out is that my 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 God given blessing is has been the people around me. And uh, and so my life is just a series of milestones that are represented by different people, uh, just incredible friends and family and and uh, uh to have those kinds of people in your life and then to, to not, you know, you know, how you drift away from people and you just, you don't see them for a while just because you forget to call and they forget to call and that kind of thing. And of course, back then communication was even more difficult. That was kind of before social media. And, um, I don't know. I just, I just felt like, I just felt like it wasn't right to, to leave people hanging like that. And, uh, that's yeah. still, I mean, that's still I, the defining, that's the defining I, aspect of my life is just, I've got incredible people in my life. That's an amazing life lesson, Rob. And I, I, I really, really hope that the people that are watching and listening to this take that to heart because, you know, you're over there and, and life is just so fragile. And we learned at a very young age how fast it could go. And, you know, most, I, and this is why I always say um, to people who, who ask me questions about what it was like or what it was like coming home, you know, you're 20 something and you end up going through a deployment that we went through and I mean, you have the wisdom of somebody who is in their seventies or eighties in a completely different phase of life, who is, who death could come at any day, at any moment, their friends are passing away. Uh, you know, this is that specter is that mm -hmm. this, that, you know, that hand of death is just close. So that's how it is in combat. It's just always there. It's right there. Yeah. And um, you learn that it's just 20 something. It's like you thinking that, you know, my son, who, again, is 14, and, you know, he, that's 10 years away. For, he'd be way, I would think he was way too young to have to experience something like that. But we were, we were young and we experienced it. And 
you know, one of the things that I was afraid of it and like it was a completely irrational fear, completely irrational. But it Rob, it scared the shit out of me it was like, if I die here, I have no legacy, nothing. Yeah. No, who, who, you know, I have I'll have like my family who loves me. They'll be sad. My friends who care about me, they'll be sad. But for how long? You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. maybe your parents will. It's always there. You know, um, it's always there. They'll they they will always still think of you every day. But you know, do you ever think you ever think about that? Like, eventually, people move on. You know, yeah. And and I'm yeah. like, I don't have any kids. I don't have a family. I have no legacy. If I I'm gone, my my life, my story, everything that I've ever wanted to do is gone. And that's something that another thing that I couldn't escape. Um, that I'm thinking about all the time, and I don't lose sleep about the, over this stuff. This isn't like, oh, you know, I, I struggle with this. It's not like that. It's just that yeah. when you kill someone, every time we killed somebody over there, I mean, we did kill a lot of enemy soldiers, Rob. I mean, we—I swear to God, we were an unbelievably lethal and effective infantry platoon. I mean, we just yeah. our company as a whole was great too, but we we wow. just. We were there for so long, we got to know the terrain a hell of a lot better than the enemy did. It was crazy. We were killing them so fast that the replacements didn't know the terrain as well as we did. It was the strangest dynamic in the world. Um, but when you when you end somebody's life, you end everything that they were, that they are, and that they'll ever be moving forward. And that was just a real trippy thing for me, you know? Yeah, there's a, there's a quote. I, I know I always quote movies and TV, but there's a quote in, in, um, in the, uh, the movie Unforgiven. Uh, with uh, with um, what's his name, Clint Eastwood. Uh, Clint Eastwood. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a guy that's a young guy who kills his first man, and uh, he says, "I killed that guy." He said, "Yeah, hell of a thing killing a man. You take away everything everything he has ever ever will have." And uh, and he said, "Yeah, well, he had it coming, didn't he?" And he says, "We all have it coming, kid." And I, that's kind of how I feel. You know, there there were some bad people we fought, and they they needed to be they needed to be removed from this earth, man. I agree, yeah, but there were probably some people that were just soldiers, and they had they had kids who were waiting on them, and you know, and um, and uh, and we killed them, and that's I don't I don't think it's something to be ashamed of. I think a soldier does his duty, but I also think that it, it's something to consider when people when people recognize soldiers. I think that I think that we're we've America is learning a lot of lessons right now about how to acknowledge our veterans and how to acknowledge our military in the right way. And Vietnam obviously was the wrong way. They were, people came home, they were being, they were being spit on and uh, disrespected uh, for doing what they felt like was a duty to the people they loved and, and cared about. Uh, they wanted to, they wanted to meet the wolf at the door. And um, I think those people have since those, v- those people from the Vietnam generation, probably a lot of G- Vietnam veterans have helped to swing the pendulum in the other way. To where uh, soldiers are acknowledged very, very um, with a lot of respect, and uh, there's good in that, and I think there is some bad in that. I think sometimes we have guys who are a little bit entitled as veterans, and that's something that, that sure. we have to guard against because we are different. You know, we're a minority, so to speak, and uh, you have to guard against that that feeling that you know, feeling sorry for yourself or feeling aggrieved in some way. And it's not it's not a good way to live life, even if it's true. Um, but then there's also situations where, you know, there are soldiers statues being taken down for this reason or that reason, mostly political. And, you know, a, a soldier is not who they fight for. A soldier is a soldier and that's it. When you volunteer to fight, 
you didn't say, I'll fight given these particular circumstances. You didn't sign a contract that said, I'll only go and fight in this kind of this kind of conflict. You said, wherever America as a republic sends me, that's where I'll go. Whether I agree with it politically or don't agree with it, it's a republic, and I will go when I am sent. And that's what American soldiers have always done, whether they fight for their, the U.S. or they fight for their state in the Civil War. And... Um, and, and those are soldiers who are doing a duty and they, they deserve respect. It's, it's a very interesting perspective, Rob, because I do think that, you know, there's a reason why they call soldiers GIs and it's like government issue. It's, it's, you're not making the decision to go. You're just, you love your country and they're sending you. You're yeah. not, you're the last 50 meters of, you know, foreign policy. In some cases, failed foreign policy. Um, yeah. That's in, that's fascinating. You really got me thinking here, and and I, I I think when you're talking about removing statues, you're talking about removing Confederate soldiers, Confederate generals, things like that. Yeah, I'll tell you what though, I I don't I don't celebrate, I don't like the idea of statues of of any people in public places. I'm not a huge fan of that. I don't I don't think that any individual should be elevated um, too much. You know, I, I I believe in the Enlightenment guys like Frederick the Great who didn't even wear any medals on his uniform, just a, a plain blue uh, tunic and, uh, you know, George Washington, these types that, that didn't, didn't, they didn't live for all the decoration and pomp and circumstance. Um, but when you've got soldiers, when you've got statues that represent the soldiers in general and you're tearing that down, you know, just the, the, the average Confederate soldier and you're tearing that down. I got a problem with that, man, because I don't think, you know, it's because the, it's because even as, the, 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 the cause for which they were fighting politically was very unpopular, and it should have been unpopular. The Confederacy deserved to lose that battle. Um, but you know what? There are a lot of people who didn't believe in us fighting in Afghanistan. And it's just a matter of time, or Iraq, you know? It's just a matter of time before statues of our guys are being torn down. Because that's, that's for consistency, that's where that goes. I agree, Rob. I do. It's hard to argue with that logic. And you talked about we have to guard against an entitlement thinking. I completely agree. I, I, what I have learned in my 41 short years on this earth is that really the road to unhappiness in life is paid paved with on, on entitlement thinking. And there are a lot of veterans who come home and, and Hey, I'm different than you. Screw you. I'm better than you. I fought you didn't. There are, there just are. And that is something that our community needs to, to stop doing because the reality is we're servants of America. And being a servant requires no, at its core, now I'm not saying that veterans deserve no recognition because they, we, we do. We're different and we do get recognition. We, I mean, we have the, the VA hospital. I mean, it has lots of problems. I, I mean, I get it and we're always looking to improve it. But it's a multi-billion dollar healthcare system in every state in the country that's intended to take care of veterans when they come home. Most countries don't right. have that. Right. As, as flawed as the VA is, as, as some, of the, some of the policies, of course, need to change to, to make it better. But it's there, and almost everywhere we go, people are thanking us for, their, for, for our service. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And now, again, many of these changes were brought on by Vietnam veterans who did not have that courtesy extended to them when they came home. Yeah. And yeah, they could have been bitter. They could have been bitter and just dismissed us, dismissed, you know, the whole thing. But they, they chose to do what was not done for them and, and celebrate American soldiers. You know what I don't like, Rob, as well? I can't. What, what bothers me is the, the 
the culture pushing the narrative that war somehow breaks us. And we come back and we need, oh, like every, when, before I ran for office, I'd like, I was a public figure and I would be asked to speak at these political events. And these politicians would come up to me and be like, oh, oh, thank you so much for your service. Like I'm some sort of victim. I'd be like, dude, get the hell away from me, man. I asked to do this. I volunteered to go. I would do it again in a second if this country was ever threatened. I'm not broken by my experience. Not at all. On the contrary. I, that experience made me a better person. It may be a better father. It may be a better leader. Now, of course, what comes with any experience in life are positive and negative, right? If you, if, yeah. if, of, course, of course, combat changes you in lots of very, very deep-seated existential ways. No doubt about it. But you look back at yourself when you were a freshman and then you graduate as a senior in high school, right? Say you're graduating, walking across the stage, getting your diploma, and you look at a picture of yourself when you're a freshman. Most of the time, you're thinking like, Holy shit, what was I thinking? What was I doing? I was told I was an idiot back then, you know, because experiences change us. And yeah. combat's an experience, right? It was lots of lots of very negative stuff there and emotionally charged stuff and loss of life, like very life and death stuff. But there are positive things with it as well. I volunteer for it. I do it again. I'm proud of my service there. So stop treating me like I'm broken, you know? I am not a victim. I volunteered. And you see this narrative pushed in our culture everywhere. In our movies, broken combat veteran comes home. He's broken by PTSD. He's volatile. He's three seconds away from climbing a freaking clock tower with a sniper rifle or something. Get him. Give me a break. It's ridiculous. Um, uh, and you see our statues where like a military veteran like holding a flag like. And you're just like, come on, man. Take a knee. Drink yeah. water. Face out. You still have a mission. You know, and that Absolutely. mission is, you know, continuing to serve America, continuing to serve your, your fellow community. Because while I think that the pathway to unhappiness as life is paved with entitlement thinking, the pathway to living a life filled with meaning is service to others, to your family, to whatever your, your religion, your faith, whatever. And it just upsets me when society and and culturally and in our movies and in the media we're just uh, combat veterans are immediately assumed to be a little bit broken and i, I it just bothers me yeah well and, and the effects are there you know there are often, often negative psychological and, and physical effects but um it doesn't it doesn't doesn't mean that's who you're going to be you know you, you life is not is not trying to make your your disadvantages, your identity, it's, it's overcoming them and, and finding new strength as a result of it. You know, my, my grandfather talked about him last time and he was in some of the toughest fighting the world has ever seen. And, um, and, you know, he chose to be somebody who was kind. I, I think maybe once ever that I hear him raise his voice, my brother and I were like going at it, fighting each other in the back of the vehicle or whatever. And that was the only, you know, just stop your quarreling. That was like the, 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 the most I ever heard him raise his voice. He was, he was a kind person. Uh, he was a very, you know, cool under, under pressure, uh, supportive of, of his friends and family. Uh, just, just the kind of person anybody would admire. And, you know, it's not like, it's not like the war was behind him on his deathbed. Uh, he was dying of cancer and, you know, you get a little bit loopy, I think, under those circumstances. And, um, he was in his bedroom, uh, plugged into, you know, uh, IVs and things like that. And he, he woke up in the night, was disoriented. He pulled him out. And so now he's, he's bleeding from his IV, uh, ports. And, um, 
my parents heard him yelling, I've been shot, I've been shot. In his mind, he had gone back to Germany and was, was wounded again. He had been wounded twice in, in World War II. And he was, in his mind, he was back on the battlefield wounded. And um, so it's not, like it, it's not like that wasn't still there. It's not like he didn't have disadvantages that came from the experiences he had. But he chose to, he chose to be somebody that, that showed the opposite side of that coin and to be somebody who was kind and gentle and uh, set an example for everybody. Wow. That is, um, that's something. What an incredible guy. You know, he was an incredible guy that you are. Obviously, your parents are lucky to have you. And I mean, so speaking of transitioning out of the military, tell me, tell us a little bit about where people can find you. Tell us a little bit yeah. about what you're doing now to help people get out. Well, so uh, I've co-founded an organization called Claymore Operations. And um, basically what happened, I got out of the military and I had a plan for myself career-wise. And it was a bad plan. <laughs> um, but where I was, you know, sometimes you just, you just, you know, you're in the, in the middle of the desert and you say, oops, I took a, a wrong turn or very, very far back behind me. And uh, I was just fortunate. Like I said, I, I, my blessing in, on this earth has been to be surrounded by just incredible people. I, I think, you know, I used to always think, what is my talent? Uh, I had friends who could play the drums and could do this well and do that well. And I, n- I never felt like I had a talent. And then I realized, oh, I'm surrounded by talented people. That's my talent. I, I surround myself with talented people. And, uh, and that means that I have an advantage in the sense that they can share their wisdom with me and they can, you know, they can... Um, provide mutual support in that way. And that was what I had. I had when I was finishing school, I was kind of, uh, you know, a little bit of a lost in terms of direction. And I had some friends who came in and, and mentored me. And so what, what we have, what we found was that it, it made a huge difference. And I had one of my buddies, one, one of the guys from out Lappleton called me and he had been in for something like 10 years at that point. And he said, ah, man, I didn't go to school while I was in the army. And um, so now I'm gonna have to work at a salt mine or something, you know, I'm going to start from scratch. And, uh, and it just, it made me sick because he was like one of the best people I knew. And I knew that he had gained so much experience and so much, there was so much of value that he had gained in, the, in his time in the military. And with the experience he had, he could take a job in middle management at any company in America and, uh, and they would be fortunate to have him. Uh, he just couldn't see it. And I felt like if he had a mentor like I did, uh, looking over his shoulder, that he would be in so much better situation. So what we created is Claymore Operations, and what we do is we provide mentorship. We actually do mentorship for active military people, active duty military. And so while they're still in the military, as early as possible, we connect military people with mentors, and actually two mentors. So each what we call warfighter, which is our, our mentee, each, each warfighter has two mentors. One is a military veteran, and one is a civilian, and that gives two different perspectives. It's like crossing a bridge. You want somebody on each side of that bridge. And, um, you know, we have found that it's just, it just makes such a difference. And when you have that whole military career uh, as, a, as a runway to be able to start to build a new purpose after your military time, because you can only be in the military for so long, you know, whether it's an injury or whatever it is. Everybody gets out of the military eventually, and they're going to need a new purpose. You know your purpose. When you're on the battlefield, you know your purpose. We want them to know their purpose when they come off of the battlefield. And just like you said, that service should not end at the end of, at the end of you know, when they take that uniform off. That's not when your service ends. You just need a new purpose. And that purpose can't be a goal for yourself. So you say, well, I want to have a Lamborghini. Okay, that's a perfectly reasonable goal. You can get a Lamborghini, work hard, get a Lamborghini. But that's not purpose. 
purpose is I am achieving goals for myself and for my family, and I am, I am helping others achieve their goals. I am making myself indispensable in the community, and that's what we, that's what we build our mentees, our warfighters to become. We, we, uh, we connect them with those mentors, and over time, uh, through uh, weekly or monthly calls, because uh, military people are all over the world, um, through those calls, they're able to build a network uh, so they have co- uh, connection and, uh, and start to make a plan for themselves so they know what to do when they get out so that they have that purpose, so that they can see their next mission. And we feel like it just makes a huge difference. That is so smart to begin the process while they're still in because, you know, when you're in and whether you're leading troops as an officer or you're enlisted uh, non- or non-commissioned officer, you're so – it's such a job. It's like a 24 seven thing. You're all, you're always on call no matter what. Um, even when you're off, um, yeah. but to be able to have somebody to talk to on, you know, a semi-regular basis, it's like, Hey, maybe you should have an eye towards this too. Or yeah. what do you like? Maybe you should take this test. And like, when you get out, maybe I can connect you with this person in this industry that you can start building a relationship with. Now that is so smart because what happens Absolutely. is these guys get out, and men and women get out, and especially after a tough combat deployment. They're like, I'm out of here. I'm popping smoke as fast as possible. Turn all their stuff in at, at um, what the hell is that place called? C, uh, uh, you turn all your equipment in. You got to clear CIF. CIF. <laughs> Remember the CIF at Fort Drum with like 15 shopping carts of cold weather gear? Yeah. No, 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 yeah. No, nonetheless, um, <laughs> clear CIF, and they're gone in two days, and like, the, then they're out. Then mm-hmm. one. So, well, a lot of these guys go into the military with a lot of baggage, man. They go into the military looking for something new, a new direction. They've got a lot of baggage. They get out of the military, they go right back to that baggage. They pick it back up and they take it with them. And, you know, we wonder why they're killing themselves. And um, they just don't have, they've lost that purpose. They had the purpose while they were in the military. Now they've lost it. They're back to where they started. And we can't let that happen. We cannot let that happen. And the only way, to, the only solution is connection. It's people, hmm. relationships. And that's where what we do is relational. It's not transactional. It's not a certain number of phone calls to get you a job. It's not that at all. The, these mentees have different things they're looking for. We had one. She was uh, an officer. She was a, a, a pharmacist in the in the military, and she had everything going for her. She just she just had so many different directions she wanted to go. She just needed a little bit of you know narrowing things down. We had one guy. He was getting out, and he was going to retire. Retire, and um, and he was going to. He was very sociable outgoing person and he was going to go live on like a farm in the middle of nowhere and we're like oh he's like you we need to build you a network buddy because you're gonna you know you're gonna drive your wife crazy and um you know and then we've got some guys that are just you know they're 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 young and they don't know they don't know what's what and um and they need a little bit more guidance and uh we've just found a little bit of everything but what we what we really aim for is to is to elevate them we talked about some of the political stuff last time and i just believe that we can solve so many of our problems in our society by putting people who know what it is to sacrifice. They know what it is to, to be responsible and, and, and perform a duty and to put them in a more of an elevated position, to have them aim higher for a higher mission when they get out. That way they can take on responsibilities that other people are abdicating. And, um, you know, we're the only organization in America doing this for active military who, who are still in. Uh, we're the only ones doing this. And, and it's just... We've got tremendous mentors. We've got uh, C-suite uh, 
you know, executives who are mentoring and um, we've, we've got just incredible people who are, you know, f- retired generals, um, people who have so much to offer. And I would say that most of your listeners probably uh, they've you know, reached a certain age, a certain, you know, they've achieved goals in their life. They probably have a lot to offer. And, um, you know, if you feel like you support our military, you feel like you want to do something, you want to show uh, show how you, you uh, are grateful for that service. Um, you know, volunteer to volunteer your time, volunteer to be a mentor because you have a lot to offer. And um, most people I have found are very happy to share their wisdom. They're happy to share the things that they know. And um, these young guys don't know to ask. And that's what we're doing. We're just matching the two together. How can people help outside of volunteering? Is there a way people, if people want to contribute, it's a nonprofit, right? It is a nonprofit. So everything, there's no cost to our, our mentees or no cost to our mentors. Everything that we, all of our costs are, are paid for by donors. So if you'd like to make a donation, uh, you can do so on our website at claymoreops.org. And um, there's just a donate button. Um, like I said, everything we, we do is from donations. We're, we've been blessed to have people who have been right behind our mission making donations from the start. And uh, we'd love to have you part of the mission. This is, uh, I think it's a great, a great idea, Rob. And you are... I mean, you're a special American, man. I've told you this many times before, but this country is lucky to have you, and Claymore Ops is lucky to have you as well. And every single one of these servicemen and women that are that you're enlisting into these programs to to be, you know, young mentees and even the mentors that you bring on, it's just so smart. And ultimately, I think it's going to make their worlds a little bit better. But it's probably you're probably also saving lives too, Rob. Yeah, saving families. I, I hope so. But like I said, to me, it's just a matter of elevating the people who need to be elevated. There. Are, there are a lot of people who have a, a mouthpiece in this country that shouldn't. They, we, we don't need to hear from them, you know. I completely and, agree. Uh, and there are a lot of people who have something to say and have something to contribute, and we're not hearing from them. Well, Rob, thanks, brother. Thank you for coming on uh, the podcast with me. And, and talk. I mean, we talked for well over two hours now. <laughs> two hours told. We probably could talk for another two hours. And I'll br- we'll bring you back again, if you don't mind, and we'll talk more. But... Um, thanks I'd for coming to, on, brother. Can I, hey, can I say, Sean, that I, I, I really appreciate what you're doing because you're talking about service after the military, and you've been doing that. Not only are you serving in, in your own way and, and uh, you know various positions publicly and, and certainly doing this, um, but you, you have led our platoon. You have led our men, and, uh, and nobody required you to do that. You were required to lead us while we were in your platoon, and, uh, and you, you chose to do that afterward, and that's – that's something special. That's an example for the rest of us to follow. Well, thanks, brother. And, you, and, and I should also mention you were an inspiration for Claymore Operations because because I saw that you knew. You, I think you understood better than I did that there was a new mission after the military. To me, it was just, I don't know, I'll go to school and figure it out. And you just kind of dove right in. You, you didn't wait for somebody to give you permission to tell the platoon story or to do any of the things that you've done. Uh, you just you just made it happen, and that's what that's what we try to get our warfighters to do. So thank you for being an inspiration. Thank you for being a patriotic American. Thank you for this podcast and doing all that you do, Sean. Wow, Rob, that's humbling, really. I mean, it's an honor, and you know how I feel. The um, when you're privileged to lead somebody, whether it's in the military or or otherwise, that charge of leadership is something that is vested within you for the rest of your life. You can't just relinquish it, even if you physically relinquish it it's there and i think it's an obligation it's something you always have to you always have to fill those shoes so that's just um that's an honor rob uh thank you and thanks for coming on the show you're you're the freaking man and we'll have you back soon brother 
That sounds great, John. Thanks. All right, later. All right, everybody. That um, is Rob Penholt, CEO of Claymore Operations, member of of Outlaw Platoon, begrudging radio telephone operator. Um, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. He's an incredible American. If you if you like, as always, you say this every single week, but if you like this stuff, whether it's in video format or audio format or however you engage with this podcast, please be sure to subscribe. Wherever you listen to podcasts or I've got a Rumble channel now um, that we're building out all of our video content on there and we're rolling out things, really cool, exciting things every week. Um, just hosted a week's worth of conservative talk radio three hours a day and got the news just this morning that it was the number the sixth biggest show in america on rumble uh which is amazing so we're gonna lots of cool stuff coming out on that front as well so please subscribe to the podcast leave reviews for it if you can because that helps us as well share these clips on social media if they resonate with you that helps too my website is official sean um, we've got Battleground Apparel on there now. We've got two different t-shirt versions that are out now. We're rolling out another one soon, so stay tuned. Um, thank you for watching. Never quit. Never surrender. Um, God bless you all, and God bless this amazing country that we live in. Take care. Jack Armstrong, he's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.